Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, early industries in Key West, including commercial fishing, cigar manufacturing, and salvaging shipwrecks. The mainstay of the economy was the wrecking industry. And many people suggest that around the 1840s, 1850s, Key West at the highest per capita income of any town in the United States because of the wrecking industry. We'll discuss Florida's long relationship with Cuba. There's always kind of been this back and forth between the two regions. And then into the 20th century, tourism became a major attraction. And we'll talk about drive-in movie theaters. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Tourism dominates the economy of Key West today, but that's a relatively recent development. While the island had been visited by indigenous people, no one was living there when the Spanish claimed ownership in the early 16th century. For centuries under Spanish control, Key West was a place where people would stop to fish, gather lumber, or recover from being shipwrecked. Not much changed when England took ownership of Florida from 1763 to 1783. Corey Convertito is curator for the Key West Art and Historical Society. It was not the economic producer that the British demanded a lot of their West Indian islands to be, and so really it was not necessarily a, a factor. Uh, it was more of a bargaining chip in their relation, relations in Europe rather than um, something that they exploited and used. Key West historian Tom Hambright is senior librarian at the Monroe County Public Library. It uh, seemed like more than Nassau uh, fishermen wreckers were working, uh, they had been working the Florida Keys, but they increased their activity during that uh, British time. Though Spain never really gave up Florida Keys during that period of the uh, English uh, occupation of North Florida, they still claimed down here and had fishing boats working here and uh, fishing for the Havana market. Records indicate that when the United States claimed Florida as a territory in 1821, there was some confusion over who owned Key West. Tom Hambright. The same confusion that had happened under the British, the, the Spanish still sort of considered this part of Cuba. And, uh, but uh, it was not clear at all in the treaty reached of where, the, where Florida ended and, and so to settle the argument, the Navy sent the uh, Navy Lieutenant Perry here to plant the flag and uh, claim it as part of Florida, part of the United States. Corey Convertito. 
One, Pablo Salas bought the island of Key West uh, in Cuba. He was a, a Cuban national, and there, there was some confusion whether or not he actually owned the island, um, who had rights to it. Eventually, that was cleared up, and Juan Pablo Salas uh, sold it to John Simonton, who uh, most Key Westers celebrate as being really the first American who, who owned Key West and, and turned it over to the government soon after. In addition to the U.S. military presence in Key West in the early 1800s, permanent residents started moving to the island. Most of them made their living from salvaging shipwrecks. Robert Kirstein is author of the book Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. The mainstay of the economy was the wrecking industry. And many people suggest that around the 1840s, 1850s, Key West at the highest per capita income of any town in the United States because of the wrecking industry. They don't know that for sure, but certainly the wrecking industry was the key to the economy. Ships would wreck in the Florida Straits, and the wreckers, many of them from the Bahamas, New England, North Atlantic states, who came to Key West because of the wrecking industry would go and rescue the uh, sailors, uh, rescue the cargo. If they could, they would repair the ships. If not, they would just auction off the cargo. And a lot of people made a lot of money off of the industry. We are geographically positioned along a very long coral reef chain, very shallow. Uh, the navigation tools weren't as good as they are today. So certainly you can imagine, especially during clement weather, wrong uh, charts, it, it certainly was a, a bit of a mess out there along the reef line. The wreckers, after the United States took over and the federal court was established here, was a closely regulated industry, uh, had licenses, had rules. Judge Marvin, who was the long ruling judge here, federal judge, was very strict and uh, required them to do it. Now, you hear stories about people doing illicit things and so forth. Now, before the federal court was established, when Florida Keys was really in doubt between the English, the Spanish, and the Americans, sort of anything would go in those days, I guess. Wrecking wasn't the only significant industry in the early days of Key West. As Robert Kirstein explains, there were other ways that the island residents took advantage of the marine resources around them. We had commercial fishing, always important. And some of the wrecking uh, boats actually engaged in commercial fishing as well. Sometimes they would sail and so they catch in, the, in Cuba. Um, but also we did have the turtling industry develop and that was significant for decades. Also the sponging industry was very important for decades. It was initially eclipsed by Tarpon Springs by around 1900 or so. But that also was important. And again, with the sponging industry, many of those engaged in it came to Key West from the Bahamas, both whites and blacks. Also, the military was important on and off in Key West. Commodore Porter in 1823 formed his anti-pirate squadron. They were based in Key West. They went into the Caribbean area to try to uh, fight off the pirates. And on and off, Key West has had a very significant military presence, especially during World War II. It was a military town. Tom Hambright explains that with the decline of the wrecking industry, cigar manufacturing dominated the economy of Key West. The salvaging started ending with basically the Civil War because lighthouses were being built. There was still some wrecking going on, but the big money maker in the 1880s was the Cuban hand-rolled cigars. It was the driving uh, industry of Key West from really from 1880, 1870s up until uh, early 1900s, World War I, 1920.
it was a major industry and uh, Havana hand-rolled Key West cigars were the uh, ultimate on the market. Corey Convertido with the Key West Art and Historical Society. When Spain still had control of Cuba, they were levying huge taxes on the exportation of cigars. And what a lot of Cubans realized quite quickly was that our temperature, our climate in geography is so similar that they were able to start cigar manufacturing uh, places here in Key West. And um, it, it was great because then they didn't have to pay the taxes. After the Ten-Year War began, 1868, for Cuban independence from Spain, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Ybor, for example, moved a cigar factory from Cuba to Key West. Others already had located here, so he wasn't the first. So many manufacturers uh, opened cigar factories in Key West, and it was the mainstay of the economy for decades. By 1885, there were more Cuban immigrants in Key West than Bahamians, and that was due to the cigar industry because they had been skilled, many of them, in rolling cigars. And that was the key to the changing nature of the island. You had many kind of uh, cigar worker areas for neighborhoods uh, that were very, very prominent, and institutions supporting the cigar workers. And also because of the heavy Cuban population, Key West, along with uh, Tampa and other communities were in the forefront of gathering support for the Cuban War for Independence, the Second War, which began in 1895. Tom Hambright. Another unique thing of the cigar industry here and in Tampa is they had readers or lectors who would read to the workers as they rolled cigars in the factory. So they were educated and knew what was going on because one of the things they would read would be the paper or something and they would see how much uh, Mr. Ebor or Mr. Gatto was making per year from his cigars and they would say well you know we want more and so they would have strikes and uh, Tampa offered them control the labor force which didn't work up there either they had they had the same labor problems that uh, and in some cases, but worse labor problems than it happened in Key West. In 1912, Henry Flagler brought his East Coast Railway to Key West, connecting the island to the mainland for the first time. He had uh, built his uh, railroad to uh, uh, Miami, and in fact tried to make a deep water port in Miami, and the technology of the time, he couldn't do it. And as a result, one of the reasons he had come is Cuba was now under uh, American influence and in trade. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt had been elected president and was going to build the Panama Canal. So he, he saw as a deep water port that he could trade with Cuba and Panama. The second part never happened, but the Cuba part did. So he has made a logical business decision to run his railroad. People call it a, at times folly, but it was a business decision. 1935 hurricane destroyed a good portion uh, in the upper keys of Henry Flagler's Overseas Railroad. The car had already come uh, into fashion and uh, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that part of the Overseas Highway was already open by the time the railroad was destroyed. We'd already built a partial highway uh, that opened in 1929. It had a ferry ride in it but you could get from Key West to the mainland by car. And then after the 35 hurricane, 
Uh, they were, the state bought the right-of-way, the railroad right-of-way, and run the highway basically over what we travel today, except we got new bridges. But outside of that, we're on, mostly on the right-of-way of the Flagler East Coast Railroad. With Key West accessible by automobile, tourism gradually increased in the late 20th century. In the early 1980s, a federal blockade forced anyone leaving Key West to show identification in an attempt to control illegal immigration. The effort damaged tourism to the island, leading residents to briefly secede from the United States in 1982. Robert Kirstein. So they said, well, we're just going to secede from the Union. And they did that. They announced in advance that they were going to secede. They said, we're being treated uh, like a foreign country uh, with the Border Patrol, and we're going to succeed. They did so. They surrendered, I think it was an hour later or something like that. In the interim period, they had a minister of defense who used a loaf of Cuban bread to hit a sail over the head. Um, and that was his version of firing at Bali. Uh, they surrendered, they asked the United Nations for, I think it was a billion dollars in foreign aid, they didn't get any of course, but they did receive national attention for their secession, the formation of the Conch Republic. Of course, they still celebrate that every year. So it's kind of interesting. On one hand, what Key West is trying to do is attract more tourists, which many cities throughout the U.S. and the world were trying to do, but the strategy they used, uh, secession, was somewhat unique. Today, more than 2.25 million tourists visit Key West each year, bringing $2.7 million to the local economy annually. We spoke with Corey Convertito, curator for the Key West Art and Historical Society, Tom Hambright, senior librarian at the Monroe County Public Library, and Robert Kirstein, author of the book Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. For several years now, the Florida Historical Society has been planning an educational conference cruise to Cuba to study the historical connections between Florida and Cuba. While the cruise is currently still scheduled for May 2020, newly announced changes in travel restrictions to Cuba make it unclear if our conference cruise will take place as planned. There are some accommodations being made for travel already booked, but we are not sure yet if that will apply to our conference. For months now, the Florida Historical Society has had a large number of cabins reserved on a carnival ship, but if Cuba is taken off of the itinerary, we will be making other arrangements. In the meantime, we are looking at some very exciting alternatives. You can check myfloridahistory.org for all of the latest updates as they happen and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, Florida and Cuba have a really long relationship. Yeah, that's right. Going all the way back to the 16th century and the beginnings of European colonization in Florida, Cuba and Havana specifically was really the seat of colonial power in much of the Caribbean, and that included that power in Florida. So the colonial government was essentially in Cuba, so any sort of directions came from Havana. And then into the 18th century, when the British took over in 1763, most of the Spanish citizens actually fled to Cuba. So they made their way to Havana, lived there. Some of them came back to Florida after 1783 during the Second Spanish Period. But there's always been this long connection between not only the governance of the region, but also between the populations, quite a bit of trade into the 19th century, even during the United States occupation of Florida during the territorial period and and through the Civil War. Americans sold beef to Cubans in Havana and and throughout the islands. And later after the Civil War in the 1870s, during the Ten Years' War, there were American mercenaries that came from Jacksonville and Key West and sold arms to the independence fighters who were fighting the Spanish in in the 1870s and up into the Spanish-American War. There were fishermen that that came over and settled in southwest Florida from Cuba. So there's always kind of been this back and forth between the two regions. And then into the 20th century, tourism became a a major attraction. A lot of people were traveling to Florida and they made their way right down to Havana and, and up into the latter part of that century. After the 1959 revolution, of course, there were a lot of people who fled Cuba and and settled in Florida and their descendants and those who were native-born Cubans now still live in Florida and have a big presence on Florida's history. So there's always been that connection between Cuba and Florida all the way back to the, like, again, the 16th century. Now you have a couple of fascinating items here from the Library of Florida History Collection that give us a perspective on Cuba's history. Yeah, that's right. You know, the the scope of our collection is, of course, Florida's history, but that can be broadened to include really the entire region and anything that affects Florida's history. So, of course, we collect things that include Cuba and the broader Caribbean. And what we're looking at today is, is actually a very large nautical chart of the island of Cuba. And this chart was produced by the U.S. Navy. It was done by the United States Naval Surveys. And this was drafted in 1932. And according to the stamp here on the bottom, it was updated through the 1950s. And these nautical charts are really great for historians. Not only did they include bathymetric information, that's to say uh, depths of the seas and the bays and things like that, and shipping routes, but it also includes some terrestrial markings on the map. It includes railroads, which are really interesting. So you don't see a lot of paved roads, but we do have railroads because this is a, a military map, so they're looking at infrastructure. It also shows locations of lighthouses and beacons and aids to navigation and things like that. You can actually see a, a handwritten note that someone added in next to Ciego de Avila with a small star, and it's written in here, Near Quilito vive aquí, which means Near Quilito lives here. So this person uh, must have known someone who lived in Cuba. You can also see Guantanamo Bay that's in the southwestern part of the island. And there are also these interesting squares in and around the island of Cuba all the way up towards the Keys. And it says danger, explosive ordnance, dumping zone. <laughs> so they're, they were dumping torpedoes and things like that in this area. And again, this was a used map. So someone was actually charting or, or plotting their passages through the Florida Straits at one point. So it's a fascinating map. Again, it's very large, a lot of really great detail. The other artifact we're looking 
looking at from the collection is a panoramic photograph. Now, this is actually from just after the Spanish-American War, and it shows a U.S. warship entering Havana Harbor. And you can see people are running out to kind of see the warship. You can see the American flag. We haven't been able to identify the actual warship, but it's kind of fascinating seeing this military ship coming into. This is right after kind of the Great White Fleet period when the United States was really building up its World Navy. Coming into Havana Harbor, you can see the Morro Castle in the background. So it's a really an interesting, interesting artifact. Tourism between Florida and Cuba has a long history, which in, in recent years has been revived somewhat. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting that we're coming back to this. And I talked a little bit about that. In the early 20th century, all of the major railroad companies had steamship lines that traveled directly to Havana. So there was this artery that connected Tampa, Key West, Jacksonville directly to Havana. So anybody coming on the Florida East Coast rail system or the the plant railroad system oftentimes would end their journey in Havana, and they'd spend time traveling around Cuba. They'd then travel via steamship back to Florida, then back on their designated rail system to wherever they're from, New York, Chicago, places like that. So tourism was a major, major part of the long lineage between Florida and Cuba. And as you said, that's now sort of coming back around. There are cruise ships that are traveling regularly from Tampa, from Key West, from Port Canaveral, from Miami, and now visiting the island. And and Americans are kind of getting this opportunity after a long time to to sort of rediscover and rekindle that connection, the cultural connection, at least in, in different ways. We should mention that for several years now, the Florida Historical Society has been planning an educational conference cruise to Cuba to study the historical connections between Florida and Cuba. Changes just this week regarding cruises to Cuba make it unclear if this very special conference will be happening in May of 2020. We are hoping that since the Florida Historical Society has had 100 cabins booked on a carnival ship for months, that our trip will be grandfathered in under the new travel restrictions, but again, that is unclear at the moment. We'll keep you posted. If you're interested in seeing the map and photograph we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Drive-in theaters are pretty rare these days, but they were very popular in the mid-20th century. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. I particularly love movies, especially science fiction, and I remember seeing The Thing from Another World in 1951 here in Orlando, and it really scared the pants off of me. That was Irv Lipscomb, lifelong resident of Winter Garden, Florida, and movie theater history enthusiast. He recently wrote a book titled Flickers, Fires, and Dreams, The Story of Winter Garden's Theaters. Irv Lipscomb sat down with me to talk about the history of drive-in movie theaters in Florida. Even though drive-ins were introduced in 1933, watching movies on large screens from the comfort of one's automobile did not become popular until after World War II. Drive-ins reached their height of popularity in the 1950s and 1960s as American car culture emerged. With the introduction of new highway systems and increased leisure time, Americans spent more time in their cars than ever before. Irv Lipscomb has more about drive-ins during that time. 
At its height, there are approximately 4,000 drive-ins operating, but uh, some people label them as immoral because there was quite a bit of privacy in your own car, you know, and because of that, they kind of got the nickname that they were passion pits. Parents liked them, though, because they could take their kids with them and not have to hire a sitter. They never charged for the kids. The kids 12 and under were always free, so that was a big drawing point also. Like many Americans of his generation, Irv Lipscomb spent a lot of time at the drive-in. I asked him if he had any memories of going to the drive-in as a child. Oh, yes. <laughs> we went to the drive-in a lot. Uh, there were five children in my family, and we would uh, pop a huge bag of popcorn before going because my family, you know, wasn't that financially solvent. And with five kids and everything, it would be expensive to buy all that stuff at the drive-in. So we brought our own. We'd bring blankets, and the older three of us would uh, get down on the blankets and enjoy the movie. Before the show started, there was usually a playground up toward the front of the screen, and we, of course we would go there for swings and sliding boards and all that. My two younger sisters wore pajamas when they went to the drive-in because uh, they would always go to sleep anyway, so that worked for them. With the year-round pleasant weather, Florida was an ideal state for drive-in theaters. In 1938, one of America's first drive-in theaters opened in Miami. By the late 1950s, at the peak of drive-in popularity, there were more than 150 drive-in theaters in Florida. Irv Lipscomb recalls some of the drive-ins that used to exist in Central Florida. In Orlando, there were quite a few drive-ins. The ones that I can remember are the Cool Avenue, the Rymar, the Orlando, the Pine Hills, and the South Trail. Oh, plus the Washington Shores. Aldemont Springs had the Prairie Lake, Winter Park had the Winter Park drive-in, Eustace had the Movie Garden, Leesburg had the Crest, Coco had Island Beach. There were also drive-ins I remember in Titusville, Melbourne, Kissimmee, and Claremont, but I can't remember the names of them. By the 1970s and 1980s, increased land values and new media, such as color television and the VCR, meant that less people were going to the drive-in. Today, there are only about 300 drive-in theaters left in the United States. There are less than 10 drive-ins in Florida, including the Silver Moon Drive-In in Lakeland, the Ocala Drive-In in Ocala, and the largest drive-in in the United States, the Thunderbird, also known as the Swap Shop Drive-In in Fort Lauderdale. While drive-in theater going will likely never be as popular as it was in the 1950s and 1960s, friends and families in Florida still go to the drive-in. I mourn the passing of what we used to have. Orlando used to have five theaters downtown. But my dad always told me you could always depend on change as the years go by. And it certainly has proved to be true in theater history. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. You can watch episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, at myfloridahistory.org. Recent episodes include Florida in World War I, One Giant Leap, a look at the early space program in Florida, and The Greatest Show in Florida, an exploration of the legacy of John and Mabel Ringling in Sarasota. There's 31 episodes of our TV program at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers Radio comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.